Sports, ladies and gentlemen, might be our smartest show. Seth Greenberg, the smartest man not named Dockich in college basketball, is going to join us. He's making his debut here on the show. And then Royce White, man. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Royce White. You got to go figure out. I got to figure out the words that Royce says. He's really smart. Former NBA great uh, congressional candidate. Now, arguably, the smartest man with a vocabulary in the world. I've actually been practicing my 30 days to a more powerful vocabulary. All right. Look, there's nothing that drives me more bat blank crazy than entitled athletes. Actually, entitled people drive me bat blank crazy. It makes me nuts. Now, here's my background. When I was a kid, I wanted autographs. I had an autograph book. The Cubs would come play at my dad's high school. Fergie Jenkins, Billy Williams, I'd bring my autograph book, and everybody was great. Always said, anybody that ever wanted an autograph, I'm signing. Some of my teammates used to go out the back door at Indiana. I always went out the door, the main door of our locker room, and signed every autograph. Sometimes it was embarrassing because I didn't play sometimes, and people back, like, when's Steve Alford coming out? I get it. People want pictures. I always take them. People want what I always do it. I always do it. It, I, I, I'm not that popular. I know that. I understand. I've lived the charm life. But I went to Indiana game the other day, and I just, hey, look, you want a picture? Yeah, sure. You want a picture? Yeah, sure. Go in the back. You want a picture? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't imagine doing this right here, what this entitled Russell Westbrook just did. Let's roll the tape. Russell, ignoring his fans. Russell, can you please sign my jersey? Please, Russell. Please, you're my fair player. Please, Russ. Yeah, look. I'm sorry. I, I just can't imagine doing that. I mean, just being an arrogant jag. That's it. Hey, look, I get it. Every city you go to, sometimes you don't want to deal with people. Sometimes you just want to have a nice steak. Or you want to get to your room, or you want to watch Netflix, or you want to get to your girlfriend, your wife, or both. I don't know. A lot of NBA guys got a lot of crap going on, but you don't do this. I'm sorry, you don't do this. Now, I've always thought Russell Westbrook to be a bit of a jag, and now I think even more. Just look at the arrogance and the stupidity. I'm not saying, you know, people say, well, maybe those guys didn't want the autographs for the right reasons. So what? Well, you don't want them profiting on, off your name. Why not? Seriously, and, and I could, I should bring those down. Maybe I'll have uh, uh, Jared or somebody bring them down. But I get, I get letters probably once a week from somebody wanting me to sign uh, a baseball card that we had at Indiana, or wanting me to sign a piece of paper. They'll send, they'll send me, you know, a letter. It's basically form of whatever, and I always send it, and I send it back. I always do. Uh, I just, I just can't fathom. Now I understand I'm not nearly never have been, never will be, don't want to be at the same level of this clown, but it just makes me crazy. This was not discussed in our pre-show meeting because sometimes, frankly, I, uh, get distracted in my life, but file this under, Hey, if you guys can find a picture of Steph Curry, find it, file this under a, as long as it doesn't affect me, Steph Curry and his wife, oh, man, they were big Donald Trump. They were big, big, big on equity, people. Hey, let's go. We want everybody. 
to have equal opportunity. Yay, Rod, go fight, win. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah? Until, of course, that affects them. Until the Currys get affected. Remember, they endorsed Joe Biden in 2020, and Aisha publicly talked about the racial inequity and social injustice, says, in our country, country. Well, apparently those social injustices can be resolved, but not by my backyard, because the Currys and their $30 million mansion, they don't want any of this, quote, low-income housing in their neighborhood. They don't want it on their street, in their town. They sent letters, filed petitions to get fences built, to ask, no, don't do it, not in our beautiful city. And by the way, their beautiful city, uh, Atherton, California, is the uh, most expensive zip code in the country. But hey, Curry's, we don't want you in our city. We don't need it. We don't want it. We won't have it. Not in our town, but let's stand up. Social injustices. Yeah. Just not around us. Biden doesn't want to build a wall. Curry's building a wall. See, I got in an argument with somebody, and I'm curious your thought on this. I am. I'm curious. Friend of mine, liberal dude, we're driving to play golf. We're talking, not necessarily politics, but it turns to a wall. And I go, you know, I got liberal friends that live in gated communities. Oh, that's not the same thing. Okay, why isn't it the same thing? Well, it's just not. Okay. All right, I agree. A gated community is not the same as a wall. A wall is far more necessary. A wall and some structure to our border crisis is far more necessary than a gated community on the north side of Indianapolis. I agree. They're not the same. One's more important than the other. But damn, people like Curry and the rest, they can't wait, man. Social justice for all. Yeah. Let's help everyone. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not in my neighborhood, people. Not in my neighborhood. I ain't having it. That's for you. It's like Eric Adams, the uh, mayor of New York City. Hold on a second here. Yeah, everybody. Nobody's illegal. We are a sanctuary city. What? You're actually bringing illegal immigrants to our city? What? Nobody's illegal. Really? I don't know. Seems like if you are in the country violating the law, you're illegal. But I digress. Eric Adams, oh my God, now it's a catastrophe. We need help. And I don't know if you saw this, speaking of these illegal immigrants, who are put up in these hotels, luxury hotels, where all they're doing is smoking weed, drinking. I mean, the stories are endless about it, screwing the whole deal. Now they've been kind of kicked out and they're camped out. They're mad. We want to live here. No kidding. Tell Noah about the flood. Ah, (laughs) the world is insane. That's why I'm here. I am here because ladies and gentlemen, you need me on this show. You want me on this show. That's right. That's right. You do. All right. College basketball this week. I know a lot of you. I know a lot of you. I know a lot of you say, hey, I can't get into college basketball until football's over. Football's over. There's one game left. It's a Super Bowl. You're going to be hearing about it. So you got to get in to college basketball. And my beloved Indiana Hoosiers have a hell of a week. You Hoosier fans, hey, man, this is a heck of a week. 
What does that mean? Well, what that means is they got to go to Maryland. Maryland's won two in a row. Maryland's won three out of four. Maryland's won a couple. Last time they played, it has been. They've won by double digits. Indiana's the hottest team in college basketball. They go on the road, they go home, and they beat people by 15. Then Indiana is going to play the biggest game of the year. And by the way, I'll give you my top five college basketball games of the week coming up. And we'll talk about all these games with Seth Greenberg. Kansas State, Kansas played a freaking epic game. The coach for Kansas State is on the daggone scores table. He's going nuts. You know that sticks in Kansas's craw. Kansas was on a three-game losing streak. Now they went to Kentucky and won. Boy, TCU beat Kentucky at Kentucky, and like most teams that beat Kentucky at Kentucky, he, they have gotten their brains beat out since. West Virginia started out 0-6. Bob Huggins, a man, now I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen to this. Bob Huggins is a man that has never one time, one time, one, I want you to listen, a major college conference title, and he's going into the Hall of Fame. I mean, hey, look, I agree, he's got a lot of wins. Everybody gets in the Hall of Fame. Now, hell, just show up and you do. But we're going to talk about all this with Seth Greenberg, who makes his debut on the show. I have said this before, and I'll say this again. There's a lot of announcers out there. But I only listen to the ones that tell me stuff. Like, I don't listen to the college kid five, ten years out of college that never coached. I don't listen to him. I'm sorry I don't. I should, but I don't. I listen to guys like Seth Greenberg, Franny Fischel, and if they're not doing it, I usually turn the volume down and read a John Grisham novel, or I'm really, uh, I can't remember, uh, who the hell's the guy I'm into now? I don't know, but I'm reading all his novels, and I can't remember his daggone name. I'm losing my mind. It's going to come to me in the middle of this interview, but Seth Greenberg makes his debut on Don't At Me live from his palatial estate in Avon, Connecticut, ladies and gentlemen. My man, welcome to the new show. You haven't been on this show. Welcome, my friend. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Seth, unmute yourself. Tell him to unmute himself. There most, you go. Most, most people would like me better muted. No. Hell no. Hey, I'm having Royce White on coming up here in a little bit. Now, Royce is a lot of different things. Do you remember him as a player at Iowa State? Uh, yeah, sure do. Yeah, he was actually a pretty skilled dude, right? About six, eight, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, kind of a handle. Had a little problem with traveling in planes, if I'm correct. He did. He had, he had a little bit of a problem. Well, ended up, I'm going to get into that with Royce. All right, Seth. I think this is a huge week in college basketball. I saw your list of teams. A little disappointed you didn't have my beloved Hoosiers after they whooped up uh, on Minnesota and, of course, they whooped up on Ohio State. A little disappointed. Just a little. I'll tell you what, Indiana's playing well. It's amazing how you can go from giving up 89 points a game and guarding no one to literally getting in a stance of disrupting everyone. And it's amazing how, you know, you lose Xavier Johnson, but you might have gotten better because now the ball's in – Chafino's hands a lot more. He's physical. He's tough. He can defend. And then, you know, they're playing 100% through Trace Jackson Davis, who's, you know, let's face it. I mean, he's playing right now. But wasn't for Zach Eady, he'd have to be right in the thick of the player of the year discussion. So I give them a lot of credit. Dad, you know, like, we, we, we've lived it. 
You know, the hardest thing to do is when your team is underachieving to keep their attention, get them back, <clears throat> excuse me, and get them competing at the way you need to compete to be you know, successful. And I give those guys a lot of credit because they were playing bad basketball. They weren't checking anyone. Uh, their shot selection wasn't good. Their ball movement wasn't good. And then all of a sudden, they turned the whole thing around. I mean, they gave up 89 points a game for three straight games. Uh, and literally, we're not taking anything away from anyone they were playing against. Uh, but he's got him guarding. They're playing harder. They're unselfish. And Trace Jackson Davis has been a beast. Hey, Seth, is Purdue – I know resume-wise. Like, don't get me wrong. I understand resume-wise they are the number one team in the country, and they should be. But you study this. You study teams, whether it's, you know, whether it's just you sitting down, breaking it down, or talking to coaches or whatever. In your mind, are they the number one team in the country? Are they the best team right in the country? Right now, the, the best team in the country, on a given night, they are. I mean, I don't think there is a best team in the country. I don't think anyone has really separated themselves. Here's the deal with Purdue. They got one dude that's just different. Let's face it. He's just different. I mean, like, you play behind him. He backs you down. He show, Now he, he, he can score over either shoulder. You play on one side of him, he's gonna he's even going to shoot the left hand jump up. You double him. First of all, if you double him, the dudes that are doubling him are up to his waist. You know what I mean? Like... You know, unless he puts it down, you're going to have a problem. But if you double him, he's really improved his ability to pass. The thing that I get a kick out of, everyone talks about the freshman guards. I don't care if they're freshmen. Look how they play. I mean, Fletch Lawyer's not, you, you, you and I talked about this about a couple of weeks ago. He's not afraid of anything. You know, and then, like, the pieces fit. Like, Mason Gillis does what he's supposed to do. First does he what he's supposed to do. You know, Braden Smith reminds me a lot of Aaron Kraft. Better shooter but like has that irritating part to his game that he's just hard to play against. Uh, so I think that until someone figures it out and they close out games, how about how they executed at the end of the Michigan State game? I mean, you're kidding me. With two freshmen involved in the play, you know, shallow cut, throw, boom, post up, game over. So uh, I think right now they've been the most consistent team in college basketball. I think there are other teams that are playing well. But they've been the most consistent team. I think the one team that can match up with them to some extent is Tennessee. We got a lot of Tennessee. Outkick is based in Nashville, and a lot of Tennessee fans. What what makes Tennessee so good in your mind? Defensively, they're terrific. Why? Well, I'll tell you, they're really connected. They're really physical. They can guard the balls. Kai Ziegler can stop the ball at the point of attack, which you have to do. They have versatility and agility in their defense. Uh, they can be, they can play big. They can play small. They can play with Josiah James at four. They can play with Josiah James at three. Uh, they're an older, mature team. You know, they're the best the best offensive team I can remember Rick Barnes having. Uh, they can carve you up in the half court. They can score in the post. I'll tell you, Olivier Kamwa, that dude can guard a post. He can also guard Jalen Wilson. Uh, so they got versatile defenders. Uh, they can play fast. They can play slow. They can. Uh, the way they uh, their lineup, they've got incredible depth. They literally have four, six, eleven, seven footers they, they can play that all can actually have an impact on the game. So I think that right they, they are right beside Purdue in terms of talent. There are other teams. Alabama really disappointed me the other day the way they played against Oklahoma. I put Port Moses did just an absolutely incredible job, kind of just out toughening Alabama offensively defensively. But I think Tennessee is really special. You know, when you look across college basketball and you say, okay, well, 
like I think watching Indiana in person, let me go back to that just for a second and talk about it from a, from a big picture standpoint. Like I, I watch Indiana and you're right. They play through Jackson Davis. I watch Purdue. They play through Ty, uh, Edie, Zach Edie. I keep wanting to call him Tyus Edney and he's exact opposite of Tyus Edney, right? It's I mean, it's just taller, like, Jesus, only two feet taller. Is... yeah. Um, Playing through big guys, you know, that's – is that an anomaly? Is that something that we're going to see more of? Because I really believe this. I, I think Indiana going to beat Purdue. Uh, I just think Indiana's playing great and sitting two rows behind the Ohio State bench. It was clear Ohio State had no shot. Are we going to see more of big guys involved to Shebe or Shebe at uh, Kentucky, that kind of thing in college basketball? I'm surprised we're not. Look, everyone's running four out, spread ball screen, roll, replace, play out of, out of spacing. That's, I mean, look, coaching is like fashion. Everyone just follows the guy in front of them. If they do it in the NBA, all right, they do it in college. It's just a trickle-down effect. But I think that if you can find a guy that can score in the block, uh, I don't know why people don't post up some guards can invert their offense and get guards posted up. But, yeah, look, if you got if you got a Trace Jackson Davis who – I give him credit because he's comfortable with his own skin. Like, he don't care. Like, he's going to catch it on the right block, and he's going to work over his right shoulder, and he's going to score. That's just the way it is. He's going to run the floor. He's not running to shoot threes. Like, here's my example. I've got Michigan this Thursday. i got to be honest with you. Everyone talks about Hunter Dickinson. Hunter Dickinson wants to stay at the perimeter and shoot threes. That's great. He can make one every once in a while. Hunter Dickinson can help Michigan win by getting his tail right to the right block uh, and doing what Trace Jackson Davis does play through him, play out of double teams. Now, they don't have great sh- sh- uh, shot makers, so their spacing's not all that good. But uh, I think if coaches are smart, you put players in position to play to their strengths. You don't care, well, i got to get them ready for the NBA. Win college games. The NBA will take care of itself. If he's good enough, he's going to get there. Uh, and you see that right now with Kentucky. Kentucky's putting Oscar Sheboy right in the block. They're doing a little bit of what Purdue does. They're, they're starting to post him from the top as opposed to from the side where the help comes – a, a whole lot quicker. So uh, I don't understand why coaches get so caught up trying to be like, you know, well, we play positionless. Well, if you don't have a positionless team, why are you playing positionless? How about just play putting guys in position to play their strengths? It makes sense to me, but I'm a fired coach. No, well, we both are, and, and I, it makes sense to me too, which doesn't make it so. If you and I both agree on it, then it's probably not right, but what the hell? It's like, although we could go to this, two negatives make a positive, right? I mean, we can go, hey, exactly. we can go that route. All right, exactly. We all, it worked we against those two te- Those balls behind me, it worked against those guys, though. All right. Um, Bayheim <laughs> earlier in the year was critical – of the Big Ten's tournament performance. All right. Whether you agree or disagree, the fact remains, Big Ten hasn't won anything since 2000. And when Tom's team's really, Tom's been the guy to go to the Final Four, Tom Izzo. As you look at conferences, like, do you have any re- – like, here's how I look at it. I'm just going to tell you this. I see the Pac-12. They get up and down. They're not worried if a guy misses a switch. Just go play. And that, that bodes well in the tournament. I see real athletic ability – in the SEC and talent and coaching. And I see almost suffocating scouting and coaching in the Big Ten. That's a broad picture. What do you see? I see Big 12 being the best defensive conference in college basketball. It's ridiculous. I mean, it, it's ridiculous really? how well the defensive side of the ball is coached in the Big 12. I mean, it is, is phenomenal. 
Uh, whether, you know, it, even like last night, Texas Tech gets back in that game against Iowa State. Uh, Texas relentless defensively did a great job of basically taking, you know, what, what, what the Big 12 does is they take the other team's best player out of the game. I mean, if you saw last night, uh, Baylor's backcourt is terrific. Any night, given night, any one of those three guys could drop 30. They committed an extra defender. Every time those guys came off a ball screen, it was hard hedged, pushed out, it almost blitz. Every time they came off a wide pin down or any other type of screen, it was extended to the point where, you know, it pushed the catch out. The Big 12 is the deepest conference, one through eight, in terms of in relation to the number of teams in the, in the league. Uh, excuse me, the Big 12. The Big 10 is terrific. I'm not sure it, it's Final Four. Obviously, with Purdue and Indiana, I think you have two teams that have a shot. But in terms of one through the conference, it's incredibly well coached. It's incredibly well scouted. It 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 the execution in that like I'm like I, I've got a Northwestern game on Thursday. I'm watching Northwestern. I love the way they're playing now. They're active defensively. They're connected defensively. The ball moves. They uh, they play with good space in. They're, they're skilled. So I look at the coaching in, the, in overall offensive defense coaching the Big Ten preparation is ridiculous. Big 12. Yeah, no, I've always said that. The the defense is at another level in the Big 12. I'll tell you the conference that is not getting enough attention right now. That's the Big East. Big East is good. Big East is good and it's well coached. Shock Smart's doing a great job at Marquette. And McDermott does a really good job and has a good team at Creighton. Cool Ed Cooley's team plays as hard as anyone. Danny Hurley's team, even though they uh, struggle in the backcourt, has depth and, and, and competes. Uh, the Big East is, is is really good this year. I had Shaka on last week. He said something interesting, and I think you and I would both agree with I don't want to put words in your mouth, but we were talking about the NIL, that kind of stuff. He goes, look, Dan, I don't want anybody coming here because of NIL. That's a bad way to start a relationship. I had not heard a coach really say that. I, I haven't talked to that many coaches. You talked to far more. Uh, is that a re- reoccurring theme? Look, I don't want kids to come here for NIL. Yeah, I think so. In theory, it is. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, Tom Izzo talks about it all the time. I mean, I, I think the, the smart coaches are having one set. And look, it's not NIL. Can we please stop calling it NIL? It is not NIL. It's pay for play. End of conversation. On, on very few instances, it's NIL. I mean, you know, look, Oscar Sheboy can make NIL. All right. Probably Trace Jackson Davis can make NIL. But in the end, a collective is an NIL for play so let's let's stop the facade of nil if it was just nil then shaka would basically not have to worry about that because but it isn't it's collectives and collectives are basically paid for play when a guy could potentially go to play quarterback at florida for 13 million dollars that's not nil because i'm not sure a lot of nba guys are making 13 million dollars off name image and likeness except lebron james so i mean Let's call it what it is. But I, I think the guys that are smart, they're using the collectives and they're basically using them for, what is it, 401, 3Bs, whatever, charity situations, tying them into charities where there's actually some good work done in the community, but it's still pay for play. And you've got to figure out what the number you're comfortable with. I think if I was a smart coach, if it was 50000 or whatever per player and everyone has the same thing, because I'll tell you what, what's happening. And we're seeing all these upsets, Dan. We're seeing them all over the country. The number of Unranked teams that have beaten ranked teams, the number of lower ranked teams that have beaten higher ranked teams. It's real simple. There's so much static around these kids, it's unbelievable. Whether it's peer pressure, whether it's social media, 
uh, whether it's parental pressure, whether it's unrealistic expectation, whether it's, uh, you know, just human nature, jealousy. Uh, it, it just it's that's real. Uh, and what's happened because of all those things, I think that your your team, it's hard to keep them focused. Like I, I, I speak with a lot of coaches. I tell them the most important thing is can't get too high. You can't do, get too low. Your goal is to navigate this season so that when you get if you're an NCAA tournament team, when you get to the finish line, which is the NCAA tournament, your team is in a good, good place, in a good space mentally and emotionally and together. Because on a day-to-day basis, I think there's so much, so much pulling at these young players uh, that it's hard on a daily basis to keep them on the same page uh, the way you would normally want them. I agree with that. I I completely agree with that. Um, First off, we're breaking news because apparently the powers to be have gotten wised up and allowing you to call games, which is the smartest thing that those guys could have done, at least in my humble opinion. Uh, speaking of games, what does Kansas have to do to win and, and avenge a loss? And what does Kansas State have to do? That's a big one tonight. Indiana, Maryland, Ooh. give me those two games. Get, give me those two. Those are pretty good tonight. That was a good game. Yeah, I think, look, Kansas could have beaten Kansas State at Kansas State. Kansas State's really good, by the way. They've got two guys that are really hard to match up with. Uh, Keontae Johnson, one of the best stories in college basketball, obviously passed out in that game against Florida State. He hadn't played in two years. And he's, uh, I mean, he's just a problem. I mean, he's a small forward that can post up. He can shoot threes. He can drive it. He gets the offensive glass. Marquise Noel has been phenomenal. But it's also... Naquan Tomlin, the 6'11 guy that handles the ball like a guard. I mean, they're a really good team. Uh, so a couple things that, you know, last last time they played, Kansas switched everything. And I thought that Jerome Tang did a great job of creating matchups and impacting matchups. So uh, they've got to figure out when and how they're going to switch. And if they do switch on a bad matchup, are they going to run a second defender? I think that's going to be really, really, really important. Uh, and at the end of the game, I would like to see Jalen Wilson on – Keontae Johnson, uh, Kevin McCullough guarded him the first time. But again, once there's a ball screen or down screen, Kansas is switching. So I think that, you know, and everyone's doing it. Kansas is switching and, and Kansas State is switching. So you can create matchups. It's not just creating them. It's how you're going to attack them. Uh, the biggest, you know, basically Achilles heel for Kansas is their lack of depth. And 87% of the points come from their starters. They've got to figure out a way in this next six weeks to develop some some depth and get something out of those guys. They have no backup at the five. So, you know, in the Kansas State game, uh, I think Grady Dick fouled out, McCullough fouled out, K.J. Adams fouled out. You know, all of a sudden they're playing guys at the end of the game that basically haven't been in that position. K.J. Adams, I'm just telling you, he's one of the most improved players in the country. I I watched every basket Kansas scored against Kansas State yesterday. The dude is the best screener in college basketball. He, He is part of every single basket that they score. He can short roll and kind of score it and drive it. It's an okay passer, but he gets guys freed up, and he rim runs hard off ball screens. Uh, you know, Kansas got to do a good job on Keontae and, and and keep Noel out of the lane. They did a great job against Noel last time. He can do that again. And then Dewan Harris, in their losses, he's averaging like point, 1.9 points a game. Now, he doesn't have to score a ton of points. He had 11 assists in the game last time against Kansas State, but, you know, just him making those threes against Kentucky the other day opened up the floor just a little bit for 
Wilson and, and the rest of, of Kansas's team. So I think it's going to be a big time game, a great atmosphere. Uh, look, you lose games in the Big 12. That's just the way it is. Everyone's losing their mind. Kansas has lost games in the Big 12. You know what? The Big 12's got a lot of good teams. You can lose games. It's the way it is. They're not, it's not like they're running around with 8,000 NBA players on the roster. You know, I mean, that's just the way it is. There's no, there's no really teams. Uh, all those young teams that have the pros, they're not ready to win yet. Hey, uh, give me a little bit on Indiana-Maryland tonight. Really simple. If Indiana handles the Maryland's extended defense and changes defense, they win the game. Uh, I mean, Maryland at times is offensively challenged. Reese can score. Dante Scott can score a little bit. Hakeem Hart can make some shots. Uh, uh, the little left-handed kid who transferred from Charlotte, Jameer Young, is, is is kind of a streaky offensive player. I think you got to do a good job on him. I, I would think Shafino, which Shafino would guard him. And I like the size on him. I think that's really important to guard him with size. Uh, Maryland at Maryland's a different team. Uh, they, they will extend. They will change. They will make you react. Uh, Kevin Rhodes, a really good coach. Uh, if they contain uh, Young and if they do a good job, obviously, handling the pressure, Indiana will win. If they pitch it around all over the place, then Maryland will be in position to win that thing at the end of the game. What a debut. Fans are just going nuts. It's the return of Dan and Seth. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. Hey, my man, thanks a lot. Appreciate you coming Be on. Straight. Great stuff. You're the man. Can't Be wait. yourself, brother. Nah, you See you, brother. I can't wait to watch him on Thursday. <laughs> he's a great he, – Yeah, let's go. I'm serious. The dude, you're, you're great. I mean, who are you with, Reese? No, I'm with uh, uh, Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown. He goes from Crispin to Hummel to Greenberg. He has – I'll tell you one thing. I don't know what he did wrong, but he's stuck with me for two hours. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> Kevin Brown's a good dude. Tell him I said hello. He is a good Thank dude. you, my he's friend. He's talented. Thanks, brother. All right, that's my friend, the great Seth Greenberg. We're going to come back. I got stuff to talk to you people about, including the NBA. What? They said they made a mistake. Let me see what else. Hey, you remember that Fry Fest dude? He's trying to con people again. Kellen Moore with a new job. The world is crazy. Stay right here. Man, I'm fired up. Sack the hell up and don't go anywhere. Don't at me. We'll be right back after this. Hey, welcome back. Seth Greenberg, Royce White coming up. We're going to talk about a number of things, including all the goings on in Memphis with Royce White, former NBA player, former Iowa State Cyclone. He was a hell of a player. I, I don't want to even think about how good he was. He was great. No, he wasn't a little good. And of course, I'll also have the five best college basketball games of the week. I don't have the games that Seth was talking. Oh, one of them I do, Kansas, Kansas State, but Indiana and Maryland is going to be spectacular. You know, Let's understand something. I, there, and you guys that listen to my show know I'm always going to talk about this. There's always a backstory. All right. So, Joseph Osai. Remember Joseph Osai? He was the guy with the late hit, right? He hit out of bounds. Joseph Osai on the sideline crying. And I mean, he is crying. And everybody's all upset. And the world says, oh, my God, we got to think about the mental health of athletes. We got to think about this. And I'm sitting there going, really? Why do we have to think about the mental health of athletes? Professional athletes will figure it out. They seriously will figure it out. I mean, I, I think. I mean, look, I mean, nobody has 
more around them than professional athletes. Nobody has more trainers, more accessibility to mental health. Anything you want, you're going to get as a professional athlete. So I got to tell you, I'm not the one that's concerned about it. I I hope everybody's okay. Uh, It's great. And Royce White dealt with it. We'll talk about it. But let's go through this. Um, Let's first show Joseph Osai answering questions about his mistake. He's the guy that shoved Burrow, Patrick uh, Patrick Mahomes, excuse me, out of bounds, 15-yard penalty, field goal, Super Bowl. Here's Here's Osai at his locker with teammates B.J. Hill around him. Dumb question. Come on. He, been, he played his butt off the whole game. That's a different question. Overall, I mean, what it looked like guys were coming up to you on the sideline as you went through that. I mean, what was it like having guys come up and then kind of uh, go? And kind of- like I said, it was great knowing that I had my the support of my teammates. And um, I just got to, I got to, like Sam was saying, I got to learn from experience and um, I gotta know not to not to get close to that quarterback when he's close to that sideline. If, if there's anything that could uh, possibly cause a penalty in a dire situation like that, I gotta do better. Things are happening so fast there. Obviously, do you, do you, did you have any idea you were you were at that sideline there? I mean, obviously you're in full chase and you know. Yeah, I was just in full chase mode, and I was trying to um, was trying to push him to maybe um, get him going backwards because I knew he was going for that sideline. I was trying to make him go backwards, get that clock running, but. Um, I, I didn't know. I, I haven't seen it yet. I didn't know how far out of bounds we were. But, um, yeah. Did you get injured on the Yeah, my knee buckled a little bit, but we're um, we're going to take care of him and get an MRI by tomorrow. Which knee? The right knee. What did Zach tell you after the game? Uh, he just told me to keep my head up, told me um, there were a bunch of different plays we had to make that it didn't come down to that one. And uh, we just got to keep moving forward. What your teammates told you? Same, same exact thing. They've been super supportive. And, um, you know, it's just, I just got, I got, I got to be better, but they've, they've been very supportive. How, how hard is that to kind of maybe kind of not put all that weight on you as you go through this? I mean, it's just. Yeah, it's, it's extremely hard, what? man. Come on, man. I'm sure it's tough. Right. Try to ask him about it. That's a really right. question, bro. Come on. Does, does the, the support you're getting, is that a sign of kind of the culture that, that feeds this team? For sure, absolutely. We're, we're one big family. It's not it's not fake, you know, and um, when the going gets tough, you know, start pointing fingers, we lift each other up, and um, I'm just I'm just happy I got these group of guys around me supporting me right now because it's, it's hard. Joseph T, you know, have a full season this year. The media, the level of media D-bag fully on display there, and I'm glad B.J. Hill was was there. Um, but you got to say, Joseph Osai is a great dude, man. I mean, I mean, honest to God, a, a great dude. I, 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 I would love that guy. I think that guy is absolutely fantastic. I think that his teammate is great. Um, I think that everything that kid does from now on Uh, I'm going to root like crazy for him. I am. I I am. All right. Here is his teammate, Jermaine Pratt's reaction coming into the locker room that caused a massive stir. It caused a huge stir. Oh, nothing. This motherfucker lands here. The fuck? Why the fuck did you cut the quarterback? 
why would you touch the effing quarterback is what Jermaine Pratt said. And of course, in our world, right? Oh my God, he's horrible, Jermaine Pratt. Oh my God, he's awful. By a bunch of dudes that never been in a locker room other than to ask a question or to sniff around. That's it. All right. So everybody lost their mind on Jermaine Pratt. Oh, he's terrible. I didn't. I understand you're in a freaking moment. I understand you're you're crazy right then. And people, we all live, we all don't live perfect lives except for our clowns in the media who are the most imperfect, most ridiculous jackasses that they are. But of course, they live perfect lives. So because of all this, Jermaine Pratt had to face the media and basically give a Mia Copa slash apology. Here's Pratt. I was emotional. I was in the moment. I was wrong. I would say I was wrong. As a man, you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I was wrong. I wasn't a great teammate at that moment. But they don't define me as a man, you know. But it is what it is, 24 hours. I'm going back to work. I got a great offseason ahead with my kids and family. That's all that matters at the end of the day. When I go home to my kids, they love me. When I go home to my fiance, they love me. That's all that matters. So all the other stuff is relevant. Back to work. Let me tell you something. He has nothing to apologize for. If somebody said, hey, man, I saw your reaction. What was that about? I was pissed. We lost the game. What do you want me to do? Hey, man, I saw your reaction. You're being a bad teammate. Yeah, well, tough. I mean, we, we, when did we become so daggone sensitive? When did we become so, like, a guy... Two minutes after losing a brutal football game on a tough mistake. And, yeah, it was a mistake. It was a dumb play. Much as I like Osai, it was a dumb play. you got to know where the sideline is. You cannot make that play at that particular time. Where did we become so soft that a teammate literally walking off the field can't be angry at another teammate? Teammates should be angry. And then I hear all these meathead little... Well, that should be done in private. But shut up. It's an emotional deal. You're blanked off. You're hot. You're hostile. And yet, this guy got, he has nothing to apologize for. Not one single thing. If he wants to say something to Osai privately, fine. But nobody has anything to apologize for walking off the field. These are not robots. These are human beings that just got done with their season where uh, three hours before, four hours before, they were convinced they're going to the Super Bowl. And now, in the most brutal way, they lose the game, man. And we're not allowed, or a guy's not allowed to do this? And this becomes a deal? Oh, man, are you out of your freaking mind? Let me tell you what's never going to happen again. I'll bet you money Joseph Osai never, ever gets a penalty like that again. Never. Never. Maybe he wins the Super Bowl. Certainly if he stays with the Bengals and the Bengals can keep everybody healthy, they will be there. It seems like, I'm not saying in the Super Bowl because it's tough to get to the Super Bowl, but I am saying if Burrow and Chase and all these guys stay healthy, a year from now we may be going or they may be going into that locker room with a totally different approach. 
with a totally different happiness. Who cares? My God, are we soft. My God, are we wimpy. My God, are we babies. Guy's walking into the locker room. He's hot. He's hot at his team. He should be. My bad doesn't get it done. I used to tell players, my bad. My bad? Well, who's bad do you think it was? You're the one that threw the ball into the fifth row. Like, I got people all the time at Indiana mad at me, right? Well, you had Calvin Sampson's team and you lost. Well, yeah, but uh, I didn't shoot 7 to 51. Eric Gordon did. It's amazing. It is truly, truly amazing. But we are so soft. Oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. My backside, just stop it with that stupid stuff. He should have said it. He should be saying it now. He should be saying it forever. Are you kidding me? All right. All right, shortly after being let go. See, ladies and gentlemen, there's always a backstory. All of a sudden, Kellen Moore is let go, right? He's let go Sunday. Monday, he's got a new job. Well, that job is now the offensive coordinator of the San Diego Chargers. I try to tell people there's always a backstory. When you see something very unusual, in sports, there's a backstory. When you see something that just doesn't make sense, Kellen Moore's only the only the Chiefs have scored more points over the last four years than Kellen Moore's offense. They've always been in the top six, you know. And then I hear, of course, our guys on ESPN, and of course, our guys uh, on Fox and everywhere else defending Dak Prescott and blaming Kellen Moore. And we get it. We all get it. We all understand it. All right. We all totally understand. It. My God. So Kellen Moore gets going. Kellen Moore, and for Justin Herbert, at least what it looks like to me, is you got a heck of a break. you got a professional play caller here that has shown. But never, ever, 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 ever forget there is always a backstory. Not sometimes, always. Uh, the NBA refs, I don't know if you saw LeBron James lose his mind. He got on his knees. He begged. He borrowed. And then Patrick Beverly came out with a camera, which was pretty funny in my opinion. It was really funny, actually. Patrick Beverly, we can't show it because of contracts, but he came out and showed the referee, look, on the camera here, this guy got hit on the arm. LeBron James completely lost his mind. The call did cost the Lakers the game, and the NBA says, wait a second here. Hell the phone here. Hang on here. Like everyone else. Oh, boy. Here we go. Like everyone else, referees make mistakes. The National Basketball Referees Associated tweet. We made one at the end of last night's game, and that is gut-wrenching for us. This play will weigh heavily and cause sleepless nights as we strive to be the best referees that we can be. It's great. I, I don't blame you. Look, I'm not mad at you. Referees do make mistakes. Just don't be so freaking arrogant. And maybe you got to be. Maybe I don't understand refereeing. I think I do, but maybe I don't. Maybe I'm not smart enough to understand real refereeing. Maybe I'm not smart enough to understand what really goes on in the world. I don't know, but quit being so arrogant. It's a tough job. It's a tough job, but I got to tell you, uh, don't give in. Hire the best people. Regardless, hire the best people. I don't know who made or didn't make the call, but I know where the NBA is headed. It's headed down the same path that the NFL is. Just hire the best people. I know that's a, that's a concept that is insane right now. I know that's a concept we cannot get our arms around. See, I thought in broadcasting that you hired the best people. I've talked to people. It's not the case. 
And in everything that we're doing right now, we don't hire the best people. So then when things head south, the answer is simply you didn't hire the best people. Tough jobs demand the best people. NBA refereeing is a tough job. It demands the best people. Period. I'm going to file this under. If you fall for this, you 1,000% got what you deserve. Billy McFarland. 1800 U.S. dollars an hour. Do you remember who this shyster is? During the pandemic, we all tuned in to the Fry Fest. It was a way for young millennials to think they're cool, go to this exotic place, spend a lot of money listening to concerts, glamp, which is glamorous camping, and hang out and do things and be a rock, go fight, win. All right? Well, what happened is this shyster, uh, he planned it, well, about as badly as it could be planned. There was no food. There was no tents. There was no setup. There was no this. There was no that. And this guy, Billy McFarlane, went to jail for four years. Well, Billy Mac is back. Guess who's back? Back. Back. Mac is back. 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 Guess who's back? Billy's back. Billy's back. Mac is back. Mac is back. Well, guess what? So Billy McFarlane has this new scheme. This new scheme is basically he will allow you to join the party for $1,800 an hour, virtual drinks, all this kind of crazy stuff. And to Billy McFarland's credit, he came up with this idea in prison. Had a lot of time to think in prison. He came up with this idea, good for Billy McFarland, bad for anybody that participates in anything that Billy McFarland does. The beauty of this is what McFarland is spreading doesn't involve traveling halfway across the country. What McFarland is spreading, you can do from your home, from your computer. It's virtual. I don't understand it. I read it. You can get drinks. You can order drinks. You can do all this stuff, but it's virtual. The delusion of this man is something, reads the big man on campus headline. It, look, it isn't delusional if he can get people to sign up for it. And if you sign up for it, you're going to get what you deserve. Here's the, what you deserve. One, maybe you deserve Billy McFarlane is a, is a new man, and this is a revolutionary idea. Maybe, just maybe. All right? Or history certainly has a way of repeating itself. And Billy McFarlane's history is that of a con man. It's that of playing to the emotions of attention-starved millennials. We've all seen the girl, and then she's miserable. My wife and I, MGM Park Hotel. I'm doing the summer league in Vegas. We're sitting at the bar. Bar's in the middle of the casino. It's after the games. I tell her, look, it's cr- I'll just meet you there. We'll grab dinner and hang out. All right. So I'm sitting, and I look over to my left, and there's some girl all dialed up. Nobody's around her. Got an ass this big, but got a big set, you know, You know what I'm saying. So she's sitting there acting like she's having the time of her life. There's literally nobody around. Literally. Like she's eating like chicken fingers or wings or whatever, but she's got one drink. It's like a, you know, sex in the city drink, you know, a martini or, you know, and she's posing. And I thought to myself, now I got to tell you, that's pretty damn pathetic. Like, that is really, really, really pathetic. And, but that's what we want. And that's what this guy plays to. 
I got to give deuces. What does deuces mean? Hey, I'm going to the YouTube chat. Does anybody know what deuces actually means? Because I see all the white dudes giving deuces. Can anybody explain to me what deuces mean? When white dudes flash deuces, what does that mean? I'm going to ask, when, when, people, when people in general uh, flash deuces in picture, hey, Dylan and Ryan, you guys are young guys. What does that mean? What is deuces? What is it? I don't know. That means you're leaving? All right. I, I don't, you know, I, I, like, am I in a gang if I flash deuces? Deuces. Oh, all right. I think you're right, though. I always assumed deuces was a way of saying see ya. All right. All right. That's deuces. All right. What's hello? All right. If deuces is is going away, uh, what, what, what is hello? Maybe I'll ask Royce White. Royce White's too smart for this. Royce White is my next guest. Uh, he ran against that Omar lady, crazy, ridiculous Omar lady, and former NBA player. I'm really looking forward to talking to him because he's really smart, and I'm going to sound really stupid, but I did try to study. I did. I, I tried to study for this. Um, but the truth of the matter is, Royce White is a voice that I like hearing. Royce White is a guy that when he speaks, I want to hear what he has to say. And if you'll notice in the interview that I'm about to do, um, Royce White, I'm going to let speak. The questions are going to be short. The questions are going to be very short. And I want to let, I want to hear from him. People ask me all the time, man, you ask short questions. Well, yeah, because when you have a guest on, you want the guest to speak. Doesn't that make sense? Um, People are saying saying hello means uh, giving the finger. I had a kid the other day. I'm at the Indiana game, and he kind of smacks me. Hey, Doc, it's F you. I'm like, whoa, 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 time out, man. What are we doing? Have a little respect. He was drunk, and so I walked away. I'm like, this is stupid. But I, I, next time, I'm going to flash the deuces because I want to be cool. Tonight, college hoops, baby, Kansas, Kansas State. I'm going to give you, in fact, I'll give it to you right now. Get your pens and paper. This is a parlay that I already took today. And you're not going to like it. You're going to say, well, that's really going out on a limb. I ain't interested in limbs. What I'm interested in is winning money, cash, scratch. All right? So here's what I took. Arkansas money line. This is all one bet. It's three-team parlay. Arkansas at home money line against Texas A&M. Duke. Money line at home against Wake Forest. Kent State, money line at home against Central Michigan. It is plus 106. I bet $300 to win 619. That's my bet for the night. It's too much, but I saw it. I figured the heck with it. Let's go. So there you go. I didn't touch Kansas, Kansas State because I don't feel comfortable with Kansas, Kansas State. I don't know whether TCU is back playing and West Virginia is really good. I don't know. I don't mess around with games that I don't know anymore. 
I used to say this game is on TV, so I'm going to take it. Not anymore. Like Clemson is at Boston College. Clemson's played great. Clemson is 20th in the country. Clemson uh, has the kind of team that can come back late. They don't. They maybe struggle, but they're connected. When you watch tonight, if Clemson is down, you might want to live bet them. That's one I'm looking at. Boston College, Grant's a good coach. They seem to be playing better. We'll see what happens. And then Indiana, Maryland. Indiana is actually an underdog going into Maryland. Now, Maryland's played better, as I said, but Indiana is whomping people. And I saw it for myself, and Seth Greenberg talked about it. Indiana is getting in a stance, and every guy with Indiana is able to guard his own guy. And let me tell you, that is huge. It's why Tennessee is really good. When you can guard your own guy, meaning I don't need you to help. College basketball is so much about dribbling, getting you to help, kicking it, either driving it off the recovery or shooting it. Or if I drive it, help comes, I throw it up. Other side, deep offensive backboard. But when you can guard your own, and Indiana has become really good at guarding their own. Tennessee, I think, is the best in the country at guarding their own. See, Purdue, Purdue can guard their own really well, but they've got that monster back there. Indiana, same thing. Indiana, the all-time career shot block leader is Trace Jackson Davis. So Trace Jackson Davis puts in the mind of his defenders, his own teammates, I can get up into this guy a little bit because even if I get beat, Trace is back there blocking stuff. So it's fascinating. Uh, It really is. And that's real college basketball. So when you watch tonight, whatever game you're going to watch, try not to watch the basketball. Try to watch off the basketball. And if you do watch the basketball, watch this. Watch if a guy, a man, can keep his own man in front of him. Ball screen, you got to help. Maybe you switch. Seth was talking about Kansas, Kansas State. Kansas switched everything. So it didn't matter. Big switch to little, little switch to big, that kind of thing. But you got to be able to keep the basketball in front of you. And if you can do that in modern college basketball, where the dribble is so important, hey, look, if you had a nickel for every dribble in a basketball game, you'd never work again. It used to be if you had a nickel, you know, you reverse the ball, you cut, you move. No, no, no. Today, the ball gets dribbled until it bleeds. Period. Period. Boom. So, tonight, no matter what game you're watching, see if the team, and here's what to do. I'll give you a little gambling tip. And I got to look. I think I'm up 1500 this week or this month. Uh, DraftKings will tell you how much you're up. If you go to the financial center, you can see on the day, on the month, previous month, year, that kind of thing. I think I'm up 1600 this month, and I know I was up about 800 last month because I changed my betting philosophy. If I'm watching a college basketball game, and even though a team is down, but I can tell that they are in a defensive stance, man, and every single dribble is guarded by its own man, I immediately bet that team. I don't necessarily bet it to win. I don't necessarily bet it money. I bet it to win, but I usually take points with it if they're down. Or if it's a really good team and they're down, maybe I'm giving up a lot less points because I see the eventuality of what's going to happen here. And the eventuality is the better team's going to win because they, they're guarding. I've told you this before. I had a game where we're up 20 at halftime, and my assistants, everybody's happy, and I'm like, oh, man. 
And they're like, Coach, what are you doing? I go, we hit three shots at the shot clock buzzer. That's nine points. We hit another two. Uh, that was three threes. We turned them over three times on straight steals. That's another six. That's 15 of our points that we probably won't get. You know, that kind of stuff. It's crazy. Watch that tonight. That is the Danny D basketball tip of the day brought to you by Illinois State Basketball, where they just beat the Southern Illinois Salukis, the number one team in the Missouri Valley. When we come back, talk about basketball, Royce White, man. Royce White, All-American. Royce White, uh, drafted number 16 by the Rockets, played a number of years. We're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about his journey. We're going to talk about what happened in Memphis when we come back. That's it. I got to take a break. We'll be right back with more on Don't At Me across the Outkick Network. Uh, we've talked a lot of college hoops today. Seth Greenberg joined me. I'm wearing my Illinois State shirt as my son's Illinois State Redbirds went and beat the number one team in the Missouri Valley. People know Royce White from a lot of different places. Uh, Congress runs, uh, very vocal about a number of issues, but many may not know. I remember you in high school. I didn't recruit you because, well, frankly, uh, we didn't think you were leaving Minnesota, but people don't know how versatile you were. Handle the ball, pass the ball. You weren't just some big, strong dude playing on the block. Yeah, I mean, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, I, I probably wasn't leaving Minnesota in that first round. I'm a very um, loyal guy. Minnesota, I was born and raised here, and Minnesota raised me. And, and uh, I have a deep affection for the state of Minnesota and the culture here and the tradition and, and my family roots. Um, one of my great-great-uncles was actually the dean of the dentist, dentistry school there at the University of Minnesota in the, in the 1930s or 40s, and he was you know, world-renowned in that, in that regard. Um, so I probably wasn't leaving Minnesota the first go around. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, led my team when I finally did get to play uh, at Iowa State. I led my team in all five major statistical categories. Now, some people would say that's, uh, you know, that's an indicator that the rest of my team wasn't that good. But that's not true at all. I played with a very good set of teammates. Um, you know, I just I just came up in a way that that you have to be an all around good player. You mentioned Dave Thorson, your high school coach, is a guy that I knew a long time ago. Uh, the impact that a coach had on you, you mentioned that he's, he's credited by you with a lot of your success. Yeah, 100%. You know, when I came to Dave, I was a, I was a kid who had started playing basketball from a very, very young age, five, six, and, and not only uh, five or six years old. And not only that, I, I played basketball at a very intense level at five or six years old for, for, the, for that time period. Um, you know, we were running, it, it, it always, you know, cracked me up later on in life when I was a teenager in college and, and we would do our conditioning and we would have, you know, 30 seconds to, to finish our, our, you know, killers, our, our, our man makers, as they're called. Uh, we were doing those at six, seven years old on my AU team. So I always <laughs> chuckled at that later on. But yeah, I mean, you know, I came up when, when I when I got to Dave, I was still rough around the edges. I was a neighborhood kid who had played a lot, who loved to play. Uh, and I was still, my body was changing and I didn't really understand the game uh, the, the way I needed to. And he sat me down and spent the time with me in film and, and skill development wise to understand the game fundamentally, philosophically. And, and from there, uh, the, the, you know, the rest was history. You mentioned the word old school uh, with, with you and Dave. What does old school mean to you? Well, the, the, the number one thing I took away from Dave was 
you play for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back of the jersey. Um, and, and that is one of the, the bigger uh, qualities, I think, that athletes have the chance to learn early is that, that, um, that mindset of self-sacrifice for, for a bigger cause and, and not a, a fake self-sacrifice, not a, a cathartic uh, self-sacrifice, but one that has genuine uh, measurable results. Um, and, and, and we started from that baseline. You know, you play for the name on the front of the jersey, not the one on the back. And if you play the right way, if you make the right plays, if, if you do what's expected of you, um, if you do what's expected of you by your teammates, who you who you love and who whose back you have and who you're committed to, good things will happen out there on the court. Things will take care of them, themselves. And that's always paid dividends for me, not only on the court, but in life. Well, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, you're outspoken. You, you don't follow the crowd. You just, you know, and when I read, getting ready for this interview, what I see is a very intelligent dude. You use words. My parents were school teachers in Gary, Indiana, and I did read books on 30 days to more powerful vocabulary. And I don't know what the hell some of the words you're using are. And they're great, man. But how did you, you have been criticized. You've been criticized for your stance. You've been criticized for not going along. How has self-sacrifice and understanding it and having to deal with it at a young age, how has that helped you? Well, I mean, there was a, there was a split that happened there. I, I, I want to, you know, be clear about um, the philosophy that Dave taught me was more um, constraint to a, a basketball context, although it did it did lend itself off the court as well. Um, when I encountered the NBA, I, you know, I made it to the pinnacle. That, that philosophy had allowed me to excel all the way up to the pinnacle of, of basketball, the basketball industry, basketball, an athletic life. Uh, and that is to be, you know, scouted, you could say, or, or sought after by NBA teams, NBA organizations. And so that, that philosophy had got me to that point. Um, once I encountered the NBA, it was, a, it was a major transition. It was during a major transition in society as a whole. And so I had to fumble my way through that and, and try and get my bearings with a basketball mentality or an athletic mentality and the social uh, circumstance that I was confronting, uh, the, the establishment I was confronting. And, and at, the, at the high school level, you know, the corruption is far, far less when it comes to sports, you know, and, and Dave, you know, is, is not a corrupt guy. He's a great guy. And, and the, the, it's not a business of basketball at that level in many respects. The high school coach has a lot of autonomy and, and he's able to build that culture. Once you get to the corporate part of it, it becomes just that very, very corporate. So I had to engage that differently. And, and then I had to kind of reflect on myself and take my basketball philosophy and, and expand it out um, and, and, you know, uh, let it grow up is what I had to do. And, and then it still paid dividends. I just changed the, the, the scope of it, right? It's like, okay, what is, what is true? What is true? What is right? What is the sacrifice that's necessary to be able to speak what is true or do what is true? On your Substack, I, I, I was reading, um, and you mentioned the system, and it, it was really interesting. As soon as I saw, it's in kind of chapter two, 
the whole system. And your first question, who is the system specifically? It's an interesting question. In your mind, who and what is the system? People talk about the system. Yeah, well, to me, I think when most people talk about the system, they talk about a very abstract uh, uh, you know, group of any number of entities that they feel are the oppressive force in their life. And, and in many respects, people identify a system as a, as a scapegoat for their, their selves and their own individual accountability in life. And, and in doing that, in that sort of self-deception, they actually misidentify the system. And not that they don't understand certain elements, but they miss the broad, the broadness of that system. Uh, and, and, and then they fall all over themselves and, and mostly in their political views and their political, uh, their political participation. So to me, you know, I say you got five major industries or, or major institutions that run the world, especially the West, but the, but the West dominates the world. Let's not be, let's not be, uh, you know, mistaken about that. Um, you got the three industrial complexes military, media, and medicine. And in many ways they are, you know, they are connected, uh, but they have their own, you know, individual task and, and function. So you have the three industrial complexes. Uh, underneath those you, you have, and you have always had uh, sort of international banking interest, an international banking cartel, as I like to call it. Um, and now the, the, the final stone at the top, the, you know, the, the final, the final uh, cap, on the whole deal is is what has become the new technocracy, right? The eye in the sky, um, big tech, and and so to me that is that is the system. You know, that's the five headed hydra of the West, and and it means to expand itself to to global the global scale and have global reach and global authority. You know, you Joe Biden just put tanks, you know, over to Ukraine and said, well, they're basically not threatening and. You make the comment, well, I think MIT scientists might say differently. Um, hypocrisy in the media. You know, where, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where a guy, in my opinion now, I, I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth, but it, I believe a guy can sit there and it doesn't matter what I do. It matters what I say. That drives me nuts. How did we get to this place? Well, I think Donald Trump was a, uh, a watershed moment of... of uh, mass formation psychosis and and you know a sort of a sort of drone like capitulation um the the donald trump was such a such a magnetic character in the political um sense or just in in, in our society in our history uh that he was really able to be used as maybe the greatest scapegoat of all time or, or maybe the greatest scapegoat since since adolf hitler uh, and, and we can talk more about that if you want to. And it's not by accident that many people, uh, many of his opponents on the left and the right often characterized him or, or compared him to, to Adolf Hitler. I don't think that that was by mistake or, or coincidence. It was in line with a historical trajectory of, of, of propaganda and, and of, of politicized narrative. Um, and, and, but the reason why I say that is, you know, we had built a society up until Donald Trump where all indicators suggested that we wanted a person who could win a popularity contest. 
We wanted a person who had made themselves popular, even if it's in a superficial way, even if it had no intellectual merit or any or any um, merit of of skill and competence. We we like that. We we idolize that. We adore that. We spend a lot of time and money on those on those people and, and that type of theater. Um, and in my opinion, uh, the establishment had made a, a calculation that they had that system rigged to 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 a perfect. Uh, level of predictability, and Donald Trump to a through a through a stone uh, a, a complete interruption in, in their calculation, and they took it personal and they resent them for it, and and their response was, we're going to turn the misinformation up to a hundred, we're going to take the misinformation dial and, and crank it all the way up, and we're going to totally test stress test what people will believe just by us saying it. Uh, and that's what they're currently doing in our in our country and around the world. They are telling blatant lies that are completely, completely uh, in misalignment with their actions. Uh, and they're almost mocking the American people, but but also free people all around the world. They're, they're doing things and, and saying things that are completely different uh, and, and they're completely different than than they claim to be motivated for or by. You know, to, to your point on Trump, I said this. I said, you know, Donald Trump, the winner in the whole Donald Trump thing was the media. It established clear lines and it established exactly what you're saying, that we can and will and have, will not hesitate to provide misinformation because nobody's going to call us on that. You have called people on that. How much blowback have you gotten from mainstream media? Well, I've been called everything from a far right, you know, uh, extremist or conspiracy theorist, a, a darling of the of the alt right, um, you know, a bootlicker, uh, uh, you know, a shill for white supremacy, uh, a racist, uh, you know, it, the the list goes on. And yeah, I, I, th I think you're right. And and ultimately, you know, this this is, and I always talk about the establishment, and I always talk about institution and institutional corruption. Why? Because I think people should take their citizenship serious. I think they should see the institutions that preside over them and start to be able to hold them accountable for uh, their role in, in the circumstance of, of everyday citizens' lives, working class, poor, even the rich, doesn't matter. Uh, we should know what our institution, who our institutions are and what they're doing, and we should, we should hold them accountable. But make no mistake about it, the referendum here is on we the people. The referendum is on us. We allowed this to happen. And the point I made yesterday on, on my good friend Jason Whitlock's show is, is this. Um, this entire deal that has been signed, we agreed to it. We, we signed the dotted line, whether we want to admit it or not. And a lot of people who are in politics or, or in the public square who are public figures won't even say that because you can't really gain an audience in today's world, if you put any responsibility back on the person who you're trying to get to subscribe to you, right? It's like, you don't want to tell them that they're the problem because then they'll turn it off because then there'll be too much too much pressure on them to actually do something. But but I always try and that's one thing, I, that's something that correlates back to what I took from Dave Thorson. It's not about what they want to hear, it's about what they need to hear. And if I don't get a following or subscription because of that, I'll take that. I'll take that hit. That's that sacrifice that I that I more from the basketball athlete uh, philosophy and into my world and, and political in, involvement. Um, so but but the referendum is on us. We signed a deal that as long as we can get a good material high um, and, and security, 
that, that we're okay with these institutions becoming corrupt and we're okay with these institutions becoming far bigger than they should be. I want to go back to Jason. You know, uh, he was just absolutely, you know, crucified, I guess, on social media. He has always been big on the family. Now uh, he talked about the matriarchy and he, and he used it relative to the police chief in Memphis and the, the crime of the five police officers in Memphis. Give me your thought on what Jason had to say about that. Well, I thought, I, well, I agreed with what Jason had to say. And, and over at Fearless, you know, Jason and I and the entire crew have this conversation on an ongoing basis about the, the destruction of the black family, the intentional destruction of the black family that the system was involved in and the ramifications of, of that and, and what we see today. Um, so nothing Jason said struck me as uh, out of the ordinary. Now, when you're in a four minute segment with Tucker and, and not a more long format like I am here, it's tough to convey a, an idea in its entirety. I thought he did a great job. The response to him from the black community by and large is exactly what I was just talking about. There's a deal that's been cut um, that allows certain elements of this whole system that's rooted in white supremacy to carry on with their business as usual every single day of every year of every term of every decade of every century, you could say, uh, or let's say the half century since the, about the 1960s in this case. Um, and then there's this other element of that group of people, the black community, that selectively wants to cry out the whole system is guilty. And it's, it's all a scam, right? And it's not that the system doesn't have guilt. And this is what I said in my substack. It's not that the system doesn't have guilt. It's that the system has a ton of guilt and that guilt has been uh, that we are complicit in that guilt. We are a part of the system. We are the inventory. We are the inventory of a radical materialist society that has become openly anti-God, openly anti-moral. I mean, in the black community, there's a common uh, phrase, get the bag. And get the bag means that you can sort of forego any moral consideration in the pursuit of money or material success. And, and that's what Jason's really talking about, is that the, the baby mama culture in America, black women, um, have been incentivized, systemically incentivized, to uproot any family structure, to, to uh, you know, to sabotage any family structure. And it's, it's cost the black community a great deal. And, and you could say before the womb or even after the womb. Right. I mean, there's all this conversation about abortion, too, that that you could rightfully say is in the family conversation or dynamic. And the, the, the immediate counter argument is, well, you want us to have these babies, but then you don't take care of them out of the womb. Well, we don't take care of them out of the womb. We we as a as a as a community ourselves, just the black community. And so the, the lie that the, the great lie that has been told and I don't mean to ramble here, but but this is a very intimate topic to me. The lie that's been told here to black people after the Civil Rights Act was passed is that the only way we can have freedom in, in this country is if we expand the welfare state or the federal government as a whole to the widest limits possible. And in doing so, uh, you know, women are um, explicitly tied to the expansion of government. And it, it, ha it has a huge effect on the family. And this is how the global and, and the federal affects the local. So, yeah, he's 100 percent right in his overall assessment. And I think people just, you know, lashed out at him because they don't want to confront that truth. You you run as a you ran as a Republican 
And Charles Barkley famously said, and I don't know, he, I think he maybe said later on he was kidding, but I don't think he was when he said it. He said, you know, black people, we continually vote Democratic in our cities and we're continually poor. Um, that makes yeah. sense to me. Does that make sense to you or is that too simplistic? <laughs> um, well, look, I, I had a very uh, unique I ran Republican at a unique time in American history. And I think one of the major hurdles for the American people is to understand the great divide um, between the Democrat and Republican establishment as a uniparty or political hegemony and the America First movement, which Donald Trump, you know, took the reins of. It wasn't his movement, the, the Tea Party and all of those things led up to it, but he took the reins of it and really expanded it and, and blew it out and took it to scale and the far, far left, um, there's a difference. And I would even say that the progressive movement in many ways shows that they're in cahoots with the uniparty, with the, the, the Democrat establishment and the Republican establishment. So I ran Republican for Congress against Ilhan Omar in, in this unique time, in this tumultuous time in, in politics. Um, so I would say Charles Barkley's comments about Republican and Democrat is too simple uh, for today. At the time when he said it, uh, I understand what he was saying. But now Charles has gone woke too. I mean, he's a huge, he's out there shilling for the LGBTQ and transgenderism at a, you know at an all time high, um, and that is a, an explicit part of the the Democrat platform or the Uniparty platform. Um, and and you know what 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 is true in it, and maybe Charles having a, a big platform isn't isn't a coincidence. Maybe it's by design that people who can't take the conversation to this level often get to say the most in front of the biggest crowd. Um, liberalism is the liberalism as a political ideology is what informs that inside that entire side of the political spectrum. All three, the progressives, the establishment Democrats and the establishment Republicans. Neoliberalism and neoconservatism is what informs their 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 politics. And, and that is where the hegemony is. And that liberalism, um, that liberalism came into, came into fruition um, as a part of the post-World War II democratic liberal order, uh, 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 a formation of global policy that used Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust as a scapegoat. And it's not to say that the Holocaust didn't happen because it did. And it's not to say that Adolf Hitler wasn't an evil man because he was. But both things can be true at the same time. Adolf Hitler could be a, a horrible, evil, psychopathic man, and the Holocaust can be a great, great human tragedy, as well as a group of opportunistic people see the, the, the chance to use it to restructure the world. And that's what's happened. And that, that ideology has prevailed um, in this country and in black communities since that time. Fascism. Uh, Ronald Reagan you know, said if fascism infiltrates our country, uh, it's going to be brought in by liberalism under the guise of liberalism, uh, that which includes um, basically the government control over everything. Yeah, you have you know, a free market, but you have government control, government-owned deals. Are we headed in that direction? Oh, no, we're there. Yeah, there's no headed towards it. We're, we're already in it yeah. right now. Um, and and it's, you know, it's daunting to say and we continue to be hopeful. We have to create an alternative economy. I think that's that's of dire importance that we create an alternative economy. Um, but, 
yeah, we're, we're in it now. And, and I think what the progressives provide, what the radical far left provides is this sort of, um, this sort of abstract spearhead of, of pure energy and, and commitment, mind you, true commitment, political commitment and participation that, that would like to present communism or, or socialism as this form of anti-corporatism. And it's just a ridiculous notion because the fact is uh, communism or socialism at the global scale is the ultimate form of corporatism, right? And, and what they're doing is they're playing on the fact that they've been very predatory, not just they on the far left, but the entire uh, post-World War II democratic liberal order has been very predatory on our young people in their education, in their formative education. So people don't even view the state, the nation state, as a corporation. It is. The nation state is a corporation, and, and when you create a hegemony of, of nations under one rubric, one prevailing ideology, like the post-World War II democratic liberal order, you now have a conglomerate of corporations. And when that body of people informs the policy at the, for the local level, you have the highest form of corporatism there is. Uh, and, and so people don't understand that, but the corporation writ large is, is now the, the bastion of, of uh, New world order. Last thing before I let you go, was there anything in particular that you saw? Because it's a big commitment to run for any office, obviously running for Congress, high profile as you are, Omar is, that kind of thing. Was there anything that you saw specifically that said, all right, I just got to do this regardless of what happens? Yeah. I was on the ground uh, after the George Floyd protests and, and I led a number of peaceful demonstrations to a number of key institutions to try and uh, combat the mainstream narrative that, that came from CNN or MSNBC or anywhere else. And I talked about corporatocracy. I talked about the Fed and their monetary policy and, and how monetary policy has a, a significant trickle down effect to the local level and how George Floyd's life, the circumstance of his life, you could see through a broader policy lens and whether it be whether it be the counterfeit money that the Fed prints all the time or it's the fentanyl that we we willingly led into this country because of our trade relationship with China. Um, th those things I tried to highlight. And during that time, I heard this. The whole system is guilty. And then I had a black woman tell me on the streets that just to be a black woman is a revolution that just to be a black woman is a revolution in and of itself. And I was so offended by that because my mother as, as a black woman is somebody who would never, would never agree to such terms, would never agree that, that revolutionary action or even revolutionary thought uh, is so passive, is so, um, you know, metaphorical. Uh, she was largely responsible as well for putting a lot of great reading material in my, my bedroom when I was growing up as a child and, and encouraged me to read as a young child. Um, so, so I was offended by that. But what I realized is the entire identity of the black woman and, and by way of the black people as a whole is being used as a battle axe against Americans, all Americans, or the American culture, or the ideal of America. Um, and the Republican Party needs to clarify our identity in response to that. The conservative movement needs to needs to clarify our own identity in response to that, which is why I decided, hey, I'll run Republican. 
And, and let's see where everybody's at. Let's see where the Republicans are. Let's see where the conservative and the Christians are. Let's see where the, where the liberal establishment is. Let's throw that, that you know, let, let's fall on that sword. I'll fall on that sword. I'll, I'll make that sacrifice. I'll be the black man that the Washington Post can call crazy or a conspiracy theorist or, or a darling of the alt-right, uh, basically a white supremacist, um, in, order to, in order to get a proper, uh, a proper metric of where everybody is. And, and I've made great headway, and I think the campaign was a success in that, in that way. And I, I've seen a lot and I've heard a lot that inform where I think we need to go next. What, what did you learn? Well, the, the first thing that was really eye-opening for me was the, the campaign uh, fundraising process on the Republican side. Um, you know, the, when I got it, you know, you hear that politics. And when we say follow the money, the, the political <laughs> campaign finance part is, is, is you know, it's door number one. I mean, it's door number one. And, and, you know, we hear all the time that these political races are based on who can raise the most money. So when I got into it, I was trying to, you know, navigate that and, and figure out my, the lay of the land there. And what I came across really shocked me that there are these bundlers, there are these uh, donor bundlers, these agencies, more or less, um, that have a database of all the Republican donors across the country or a lot of Republican donors across the country and they rent their service. They rent those lists to you um, for a, a, a split. And the first offer I got on this split was 85-15. And I thought to myself, man, those sound, those sound like relatively uh, uh, normal numbers coming from the basketball world. 15%, an agent usually gets about 15% on, a, on an endorsement deal or whatnot. Um, I think it's the American people's money and the American people's dollars, so it, it shouldn't be like a basketball uh, a contract. What I found out was that it was 85% to the bundler. Oh! oh. <laughs> and, what and, and so... And, and I thought, no, and, and I, my initial response was, wow, I must have found a, a corrupt unicorn out here in the wild that thinks they could actually run this scam on, on candidates. Not the case. This is the norm. This is the norm in campaign fundraising on the Republican side. So then it became very clear to me just how much the Republican apparatus is playing that position of, uh, the, is, is, Functioning, at, functioning as controlled opposition before the money even gets to the race to try and influence elections from Americans who actually do want to participate. You know, we, we sort of tell the story that Americans aren't participating. They're giving their money. They're trying to participate. But we got these third party middlemen, these third party bundlers that are taking 85 cents on the dollar for every American. So not only are our politicians who get into office scamming the American people out of, out of their tax money, we got middlemen in there that are leeching and scamming the American people off the dollars they're trying to use to influence elections. That was what I, that was the biggest takeaway, to be honest, that we need to, we, we, we have to restructure the entire conservative movement and Republican apparatus if we want to actually save this country. How disappointing was that? Um, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't as shocking as I'm making it out to be right now. In retrospect, it's like, wow, that was that was eye opening. But I could tell that something was, you know, anybody who accepts that there's a uniparty sort of scam happening in D.C., um, that wouldn't shock you. It wouldn't shock you to find out that in the in the in the bottom of the, you know, the Republican foundation, 
is all this corruption and, and money scamming going on. That, that, that wouldn't shock anybody. So, and look, I'm not telling people not to donate to their, their candidates, right? Um, what I'm saying is you should probably donate straight to your candidate. Um, when Red has gotten a lot of criticism, and I'm not here to say when Red isn't corrupt or, that, or to shill for when Red. Um, but the donations that came straight to the campaign through Win Red, they took about, you know, one and a half percent or two percent, which I think is reasonable. Right. It's like any other payment processor, you could say. Um, so that was reasonable. Uh, but these bundlers, I mean, if you get an a, a, a in the mail notice, if you get it, you need to check into who's who's facilitating your donations. And my recommendation would be to donate straight to great candidates like Carrie Lake, like myself. Uh, you know, a Matthew Gates or, or whoever these candidates are that are actually standing up for, for America, you need to donate straight to them and, and figure out where your money's going and be very weary of, of the local Republican establishment in your, in your city, state, town, or whatever the case may be. Royce, I kept you way too long, man. Great conversation. I, I, I thank you. I've admired you. I admire what you're doing. And I, I thank you for taking a half hour with us. I kept you too long. I apologize, but I had a great time talking to you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate the time. Godspeed, man. That's Royce White. Uh, I, look, I, I turned my wife. I said, look, I'm going to have Royce White on tomorrow. And she's like, oh, really? So I showed her. And now uh, she, you know, <laughs> now she can't get enough. All right, well, we're going to kick back to sports, but I, I would, this is the reason I came from ESPN to here. Conversations like that. Can't have that conversation at ESPN if you're me. You just can't. Uh, appreciate Royce White. Appreciate everybody at OutKick for helping us get that done. I got college hoops coming back. We got a lot to get to. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. Got to take a short break here. We are rolling with Don't At Me, and you don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Hey, thanks, Seth Greenberg. Thanks, Royce White, for coming on the show. And, man, that's why I love doing this show. I'm sorry. I just do. I love doing it. All right, this weekend and this week in general, a ton of great college basketball. I'll tell you one that's sneaky good tonight, Steve Alford's Nevada Wolfpack. They're a really good team. They're taking on San Diego State. They're a home dog at two and a half, but that is a really, really good game. Uh, I'm going to give you the five best college basketball games, must-see college basketball games this weekend. First, number five, ladies and gentlemen, Kansas, Kansas State. We already talked about it with Seth Greenberg. Kansas coming off a monster when Kansas had lost three in a row, only time they've ever done it in the Bill Self area, era, then had to go to Rupp against a Kentucky team that seemed to have found its footing playing through Oscar Sheebway in the post. Well, guess what? Nay, nay, Nanook. No, 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 no. They had a hell of a game, and it ended up being, well, you know what? It, it ended up being Kansas basketball. It ended up being Bill Self playing defense, his team, Bill Self getting contributions from a number of guys, big shots being made, and they ended up beating Kentucky. Now, in the world of Kansas State, you got to understand something. Kansas State has celebrated or did celebrate their win over Kansas when they won a couple weeks ago. And they did it in such a way that I would be using everything that Kansas State did with my team at Kansas for this particular game. Jerome Tang, the coach, got on the 
scores table, the crowd rushed to court. It tells you at Kansas that you're still obviously a big-time team uh, this year, but it also is like, hey, wait a second. This is a little infuriating. We got a little something for these guys, and if I were Bill Self, I'd tell my team and my fans, when we beat these guys, nobody rushed to court. Just don't do it. Don't rush to court. Don't do it. We're going to act like we've been there. Now, I'm not saying, I am not saying at all, not even a little bit, that it, they did anything wrong. I'm not saying anything. They did nothing, zero. I'm just saying that if I were Bill Self, that's what I would be doing. I would be all over this. I would be crushing souls about, look at how they embarrassed you, all that. I mean, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. All right, next one. Gonzaga at St. Mary's. Look, Gonzaga doesn't have three pros on its team. There's no Jalen Suggs. There is Drew Timmy, who is very good. They're going into a St. Mary's team that, frankly, is on the bubble, probably in the NCAA tournament. But they are, ah, you know what? They're in the top 20. So they're in the tournament, but a couple of good losses, and they will be out quick. Here's the deal. Randy Bennett is going for his 500th win at St. Mary's. Now, St. Mary's, you're going to see this. You're going to see a team that is going to move, that is going to cut. Now, I talked about Purdue. If you watch this game this Saturday, watch off the ball with St. Mary's. St. Mary's, under Randy Bennett, passes the ball as well as any team in college basketball, and nobody cares about it. Like, nobody loses their mind on it. We had Shaka Smart here, and he was talking about his assist guy, Conkel, who is the uh, second or third assist guy in the country. Nobody's even talking about the kid because we got to show guys dunking. I don't want to show guys dunking. I don't want to. I want to see slick passing. I was watching a Larry Bird highlight thing this morning. Don't know why. It just came across me. And next thing you know, Bird's giving it all this. He's faking over top. He's shooting. It's incredible. And I'm sitting there going, all right, right now, right now, name me one player in the NBA. And I'm not talking about shooting. I'm not talking about dunking. I'm not talking about finishing around the rim. Name me one player that you watch that you say, this guy's a great passer. Man, I love watching this guy pass. You know who was? I'll tell you a guy who was. Rajon Rondo. Rajon Rondo was fantastic. Rajon Rondo was a guy that I would pay to go see play basketball before whatever Rajon Rondo did. I'm talking about Rajon Rondo when he was uh, with the Celtics when they won a championship. All right, St. Mary's, 8-0. I'm going to go through some numbers for you. 19-4, Gonzaga, 18-4, in the league. They lost uh, at home, Gonzaga did. This would be a win for Gonzaga that wins them their conference. This would be a win for Gonzaga. Uh, number 12 beating number 18. Gonzaga is 12. St. Mary's is 18. That would put them in contention. I don't think they would get there, but in contention for a one seed. Maybe, possibly a two seed, but I don't think they can get there. Maybe, just maybe. Now, a lot of people are saying the one team you don't want to play, baby, as a mid-major, there's two teams, Florida Atlantic of Dusty May, and the Gonzaga Gales. Look, I don't know who mid-majors or majors want to play. I don't know who they don't want to play. When you get in the tournament, everybody is good. Did you know this? Let me go through this for you. Four guys in double figures for St. Mary's. Only one guy, I'm sorry, one guy averaging more than 13. And that's at 14 and a half. Balanced team, you're going to like watching them. If, in fact, 
You watch them tonight. Transfer from Cincinnati, Logan Johnson, athletic kid who's learned how to pass. Number three, because everybody is here, because they're the number two team in the country, and because Bruce Pearl can coach his brains out and is beloved in Knoxville, this game could have been number one, but there's no chance it was going to be number one. Auburn against Tennessee. Now, let me tell you, Tennessee, really good. No joke, really good. Don't at me. Fantastic. Blah, 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 blah. They guard. They're talented. You heard Seth Greenberg say earlier, this might be Rick Barnes' best offensive team. And I don't doubt it. It also might be as athletic and as good defensively as any team that Rick Barnes has. And anybody that knows anything about Rick Barnes knows that Rick Barnes has had pretty daggone good teams over the course of years. He just simply has. So when you're putting teams into, well, this is as good as Rick Barnes has, you're talking about some pretty elite company. Auburn, the time they're 6-2. and two. They lost the home game the other day, but they're 6-2. and two. They're 25th in the country. And I'm telling you, you don't mess around with Bruce Pearl. They've lost their last two. Bad loss, I thought, to Texas A&M. And then on the road, Saturday, they got down 20. They came back. They got it to within one. It ended up losing by three at West Virginia. So Bruce is coming off of two losses. But going into Knoxville, this is going to be a hardly charged environment. This is going to be craziness. This is going to be Tennessee people both loving Bruce Pearl and hating Bruce Pearl, obviously. And it's a top 25 matchup. In fact, I would argue it's a number two matchup. Maybe the best team in the country with Tennessee. Number two is Duke and Carolina. Don't at me. I understand a lot of people are mad, particularly in the great state of Indiana. Indiana's playing uh, Purdue. One against whatever Indiana is, 20th. But it's still Duke and Carolina. And I got to tell you something. Even though I believe the angst, the hate, when Kentucky and Louisville are really good, that makes that rivalry better for me personally. These games, as Billis always says, they deliver. Duke and Carolina deliver. Now, people are asking me, why, why, why is game day going to Duke, Carolina? Neither team is ranked. They've got been a bit of a disappointment this year, particularly Carolina. Coming off a championship game runch. Coming off, really, a championship game where they were up big at half against Kansas. Kansas came rowing back, won national championship. I'll tell you why. Because ESPN understands this, the highest rated game in college basketball on ESPN year after year after year after year is that one right there. They may not be to the level, but they're still Duke and Carolina. There may be no Coach Krzyzewski. There may be no Roy Williams, but it's still Duke and Carolina. It is. And people can complain, why is game day going there? Well, the reason game day is going there is because it sells. Duke, Carolina always, always delivers, and ESPN puts a ton of resources into it. That's why a lot of people are asking me, how can they not be at IU? This is the biggest game at Indiana since the Kentucky game back when Tom Crean was rebuilding the program. I get it. I swear I do. But Indiana, or excuse me, but the uh, ESPN puts a ton of resources into this game. They have promotions built for the next Duke-Carolina game. It ain't just this one. They've got, they've got things built in right now, ready to go for the season ender Duke-Carolina. So I get it. I understand. But no amount of complaining is ever going to change it. All right? Duke, 
six and four in the league. Carolina, seven and three. Fifteen and six is what both of them are. Unduke, uncarolina like, fine. Fine. Still gonna be a hell of a game. Number one game this weekend is Indiana and Purdue, and I'm glad to see it. I am. Indiana has played great. Indiana went to Illinois and beat a really good Illinois team by double digits. Indiana, I get it. People are going to say, well, you haven't played great teams. I don't know. They blew out Wisconsin in the second half at home. They blew out Michigan State in the second half at home. Last two minutes against Ohio State, they outscored them 17-1 to or last three minutes on Saturday night. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Indiana's playing great. And on the other side, there's absolutely nobody, and I mean nobody, better right now than Zach Eady in the post unless it's Trace Jackson Davis. And there is nobody, and I mean nobody as a team, playing better than Purdue. Now, think about this. Purdue lost a top-five draft choice in Jaden Ivey. Purdue lost maybe the best passing big man in Travion Williams. Indiana really didn't lose anything. The one thing they lost is a guy named Rob Finnessy. Now, Rob Finnessy hit the game winner against Purdue last year, first time Indiana had beaten uh, Purdue since, I think, the Reagan administration. And Finnessy was the main reason behind it. He came in, he knocked out a bunch of shots, hit a baseline jumper, hit a three, won the game for him. He's not there, but he's not a great player, wasn't a great player, and didn't do anything after that. They've replaced him with Jalen hood Shafino, and it is an upgrade. It's a major upgrade, even though hood Shafino is a freshman. This is going to be the most fun game because this is a throwback game. This is a game where it's going to be two post kids and some young Indiana players taking on more of a national base in Indiana. The young Indiana players, a lawyer from Fort Wayne and Smith from Westfield, Indiana, are at Purdue. Newman, Indiana. Kaufman Wren, state of Indiana. You got a lot of Indiana kids. You got a lot of Indiana flavor on Purdue. Indiana, Galloway, and Trace Jackson Davis, two Indiana kids. All these kids grew up playing against each other. Assembly Hall is going to be insane, particularly if Purdue gets by Penn State and Indiana gets by Maryland. Even if Indiana loses, you're talking about Purdue coming in there number one in the country. It is going to be insane. If you want something on your bucket list and you want something to do this weekend, drive to Bloomington, find a hotel somewhere, go to Nick's, get there at about noon for a 5 o'clock game, get yourself a seat, order a pizza, order some Stroms, and just have at it. Play Sink the Biz with your friends. You'll find out what when you get there. Order some fries and enjoy a day like you've never seen. And if somehow, some way, you scam tickets to it because there's always scalpers out there Wait until just after game time, the prices go way down, then you'll have yourself a heck of an afternoon. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Indiana got a tough one tonight. I'm going to take Indiana on the money line, but it is, it is interesting uh, tonight. All right. The Wokado prosecutors are trying to block out Chloe Cole at an event in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, as she was speaking out about her experience transitioning and against gender mutilation of children. Of course, the protesters, as protesters always do, had nothing logical to say, nothing logical to do. They only had this. Let's see it, Dylan. the chance. 
Why is it that every crazy little maniac, incredible, ridiculous, asinine person that wants to mutilate children looks and acts like these idiots? Look at the, the green hair. Look at the size here to the left. Look at the idiot on the floor acting like an idiot. Look at the militant on the right. I don't respect any of them. Now, one of the reasons I don't respect them is because they don't respect themselves. I mean, look at them. I mean, look at how they go about their business. Look at how they go about doing what they do. Look at these people. They're, they're literally insane. We're not allowed to say it, or you aren't allowed to say it. Hell, I'm going to say it. They're completely insane. They're completely out of their mind. Look at it. Who kneels down in the middle of a street and just starts screaming? Now, look at that. Bye. Bah! These are people that have nothing else going on in their lives. These are people that are the most miserable among a look at the size on the left, just go, speaking into a megaphone. Now, you can say I'm body shaming. You'd be right. Look, I don't care what anybody says. I mean, first impressions are based on looks. I got to go through life looking like this. It ain't easy. And when I had hair, I had to make sure I swooshed it around and patted it down and then lacquered it up. And away we went. So I understand that you get judged on looks, and if you don't like it, don't look like that. Look at these people, complete idiots. And then, of course, there's always the purple-haired idiot, in this case, the lime green idiot, that we're all supposed to take our cues from. I got to tell you, I don't listen to none of them. I make fun of them because they deserve to be made fun of. They do. I'm sorry, but if you're going to lay down in the middle of a brick road screaming like a complete idiot, we must make fun of you. It's almost in nature. It's almost just part of the DNA of human beings that we must make fun of you if you're going to do this. And I get it. The girl with the green hair, she's craving for attention. I'm sure daddy didn't show her enough, all that kind of stuff. So let me go get lime green hair so people can pay attention to me. I need attention. Well, you got it. You made the greatest show in the history of mornings. You got it. You got it right here. What can I tell you? Isn't it great? Yes, it's great. You got the attention of me, which means you did exactly what you should do. I got to tell you, there's nothing wrong with shaming freaks, man. There is nothing wrong. There isn't. They're all mentally ill. They're freaks, and away you go. Uh, I cannot be in Assembly Hall this Saturday. I would love to be in Assembly Hall, but I would rather be where I am going to be. We have an event. It's called Dockage Cycles for the City. We have an event, I'm sorry, we have an event for Docket Cycles for the City. And at that event, we're going to raise a ton of money for kids and bicycles. We've got 200 tickets that we need sold. I think we're about 195. It's a tough, tough day to sell tickets. The biggest fundraiser, the biggest event for dudes in the city is the sportsman's uh, dinner, which I spoke at one year, had a blast at. That's going on that night. Indiana's playing Purdue that night. It's a tough, but I don't care. We got a great $15,000 additional donation. You know how many bikes $15,000 could buy? I'm not a math whiz, but $15,000 divided by $250, which is what a bike a lock uh, costs. And we're, our toes are tapping. That's just a donation on top of the 200 times 100. Because we're going to sell 200 if I got to pay for the rest out of my own pocket. So I will not be in Assembly Hall, but we are going to break down Indiana, Purdue all week long. We're also waiting for smoke to come out of 56th Street here in Indianapolis. Just go ahead and sign up Jeff Saturday. 
Just go do it. I mean, who cares? You know what I'm saying? Like, who cares? Just do it. I mean, you're going to do it anyway. I get it. You got to fake us all out with the Rooney rule. You ever go to church? They're always folding after, uh, after com- communion. They're always folding. They're placing. You know, they're, I got this thing from somebody I like. Actually, from a player's mother. Gave me a golf ball crystal. So at the end of mass, right, the priest is folding and they're putting in the chalice to the altar boy. And the altar boy puts it in the thing there. And it, yeah, that's what I was doing. Uh, right there. But that's where I'm going to be this weekend. And we're going to talk about it as we move through the week. We're going to continue to talk hoops. Obviously, we're going to break down the NFL. I got to tell you, Colin Burroughs says, those people are nuts, Dan, and they'll accuse you of violence for noticing it. I had that from a crazy lady. I told a crazy lady named Joanne Mellis I would not go in a pool with her. She said that was violence. People are idiots. Yes, they are mentally ill. I agree with that. The one lady, Lick, said she had a pacifier in her mouth. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. I can't argue. When people are adults and they have pacifiers in their mouths, nothing you could do. Yeah, I agree with this. Royce, Royce White was the best dressed. He came out in all black, had a black background. It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. I'm not mad, though, at getting 32% of the vote. One out of three of y'all on the YouTube chat voted for me. That is shocking. I don't know how anybody could vote for Seth Greenberg in terms of how he was dressed over myself or Royce White. But, hey, look, different strokes for different folks. I am resplendent in my 1987 Redbirds uh, sweatsuit jacket. Yeah, that's right. It's the only gear I got from my son. I fly the flag. I listen to the whining when they lose. You know what I mean? I'm a good dad with it. What the heck? Send me a triple X t-shirt because I shrink things in the laundry, Andrew Dockage. Get off your backside and let's go. Thanks to everybody that participated in the YouTube chat. Uh, we got a couple of hundred people, 300 people, Butterfly, Fred Haviland, Gary Mitchell, Jody Shelton, Lick, Ross Bunnell, Spice Rack, Stephen Cook, and all the rest. Thank you all. Have a wonderful afternoon. I will speak to you tomorrow on Do Not At Me, a.k.a. Don't At Me.